Well, when I was in seminary over 20 years ago, I don't about it, but I'm sure of this. We never talked about the possibility of what do you do for church ministry in the case of a worldwide pandemic when everyone is told to stay at home, to social distance, whatever that means. Um, it's kind of like uh, playing a round of golf with only one golf club for you golfers. Uh, it's hard to have all the tools taken out of your, your, uh, your tool box. But that's what we have, and so we continue this way anyway. We started as a church, a sermon series, a couple of months ago on the one another commands of the New Testament. Love one another, welcome one another, share burdens with one another, encourage one another, and so on. There are a number of these commands in the New Testament letters and the gospel accounts. And one of those is uh, in this letter from Peter, this first letter of Peter. In fact, he, he mentioned several of them right here in this passage. And I'm going to read this passage of Scripture to you. And um, as I do, I want to offer a quick word of caution about the very first sentence of this passage of Scripture that you hopefully have in front of you on the liturgy there. Um, this very first sentence might seem sensational given the current world events, I don't think that the Apostle Peter intended it to be some kind of a melodramatic declaration of hopelessness. The end of all things is at hand, he says. I don't think he meant it to be overly dramatic, and I don't intend it to be that way either in our current context even, but still there's a gospel lesson to be had from it. So you kids who are worshiping with us this morning, who are in your living rooms or in your kitchen, wherever you are, you're probably still wearing your pajamas. This is pajama church for you, I suppose, and that's good. But uh, pay attention and listen. As, as we read this passage of Scripture, we're going to see that because the end of all things is, is near, Peter says, Christians are to be doing some things. What are those things that we're to be doing? Notice that, what Peter says in First Peter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God stand forever. Peter is writing this letter to uh, a certain scattering of Christians somewhere around the time 60 A.D. in the 60s or so, some 30 years or so after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And his first words, his address of the letter, are these words. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if those place names don't mean much to you, they simply referring to what we call Asia Minor the modern-day country of Turkey. 
That's where these Christians, these churches were to whom Peter was writing. And he calls them exiles of the dispersion, which makes you think perhaps that he's referring to Jewish Christians who were dispersed from Jerusalem. And certainly there are those there. But he also writes to them some things that uh, cause you to realize there aren't just Jewish Christians among them. There are also Gentiles. He refers to the feudal ways of their forefathers. You wouldn't have said that just to Jewish Christians. Their, their forefathers' ways were not futile. There are Gentiles in the midst of these people just like you and just like me. People who, because of the gospel faith that had come to them and the life change that the gospel inevitably brings to one, to these people have become strangers, as it were, in the Mediterranean and Roman world of that time. Now, for four chapters in this letter, as he's begun it, Peter has been exhorting these Christians to pursue holiness, which is the very thing that makes them strange in the world. And it's the very thing that makes the gospel itself very difficult. But if you read the letter itself, and you can, it's a short letter. You could read it this afternoon. I'd encourage you to do that. Read it from beginning to end. It's short. If you read the letter, you'll see that again and again, Peter points these Christians directly to Jesus himself. In chapter 1, he writes this, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in chapter 2, he explains how we're to endure hardship and suffering because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. In chapter 3, he writes, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And now, after all these hopeful pointers to Jesus himself, Peter now, in chapter 4, says, the end of all things is at hand. What does he mean by that? What does Peter mean to say all things is at hand? Is Peter suggesting that maybe he, as an apostle, knows something that even Jesus the Son didn't know? Because Jesus had told his apostles, his disciples, that even he the Son didn't know when would be the time of his second coming. Only the Father knew that and even knows that now. Does Peter know something that Jesus doesn't know? No, I don't think so. I don't think what Peter is after is that. But rather, Jewish prophets were always looking to see the next great event in God's redemptive plan. But they could only know what God gave them to know. In fact, Peter writes about that very thing earlier in his letter. In chapter 1, he writes these words. If you have a Bible before you, you can open it to chapter 1 and, and read in verse 10 these words. Peter writes, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, that is, to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Even the angels didn't quite know 
but the prophets didn't know it. The prophets were eagerly inquiring about, seeking to know the next great event in God's redemptive plan. I think what Peter is saying is simply this. The next great event on God's redemptive calendar at this point is the great event. The next great event on God's redemptive calendar is not Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and it's it's not Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land, and it's not even David becoming king, and it's not even the Son of God becoming flesh. It's not even that. The next great event on God's redemptive calendar is the return of Christ. That's what Peter means by the end of all things is at hand. The Puritans, I understand, had a, a saying that went something like this. Live this life with your feet on the earth, but with your eyes on heaven. You know, our guilty selves read a, a passage like this in 1 Peter 4, and we see this declaration that the end of all things is at hand, and we want to interpret it like this. Well, the end of all things is at hand. Jesus could return at any time, and so I sure better start living my life right. And, well, you know, that, I guess that can maybe have some helpful value to you, but I don't think that's really what Peter is after here. He's not trying to put a guilt trip on people. I think what he's saying is something more like this. The end is near. Jesus could come at any time. So let me not be found when he comes living as though God had not loved me well. Because God has loved me well in the gospel, and my life should reflect that. So when he comes, let me not be found as though I had not been loved well by God himself. You see, the more that the gospel truth has saturated your soul, the more you'll be self-controlled, the more you'll be sober-minded. References here. In fact, I've heard someone say, if you're only heavenly-minded, then you're no earthly good. But in fact, the opposite is true. If you're not heavenly-minded, then you are no earthly good. And if you are heavenly-minded, then you are self-controlled and sober-minded. And therefore, your prayers are effective. Your prayers are substantial and significant. Because you rest in the righteousness of Christ. But many don't rest in the righteousness of Christ. And even for those who do, sometimes God shakes up the world in order to recapture our attention. Maybe he does it with a virus. Maybe he does it with the economic repercussions of the fear of an unseen enemy. Whatever your take might be on the the current public health crisis and all of its details, you have to realize, as a Christian, if you are one, that we're simply strangers in a broken world. In fact, even if you're not recognized that we're strangers in a broken world, we don't belong in this world. There is always something going wrong. Sometimes we don't recognize the things that are wrong up close, and so God gives us something on a broader scale to allow us perhaps to see it. And the gospel calls us to embrace that strangeness for one another's sake. How are we to do that? Peter gives us three quick things here that we're supposed to be doing, because the end is near. One of those is love each other. Love one another. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Because the end is near, love one another earnestly. 
back at the beginning of February when we started this series on the one another passages, we began with love one another. We looked at John chapter 13 and saw the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples. And he told them, love one another as I have loved you. That was the new commandment that he gave to them. And there on that week, we considered together the reality that all of the one another commands that follow are really just details. They're simply expressions of this first one, love one another. Love one another with the same self-sacrificial love that you have found in the gospel. And we ask ourselves there, why does it matter? Why does it matter that we should love one another? And the answer was because love is the great apologetic. Love is the great proof of the legitimacy of the gospel. Jesus said it clearly himself. He said, by this, all people will know my disciples, if and only if you have love for one another. That's how people will know that the gospel is legitimate. And why is it that people will know that you're his disciples if you love one another? It's because love covers a multitude of sins, and only love can do that. Healthy friendship knows that this is true, and every healthy marriage knows that this is true. There's a multitude of sin that has to be covered graciously by love. Now, the world wants to expose sin. The world wants to hang your sin out like a dirty bedsheet for all to see because the world trades in shame. The world wants to expose sin. And the virus has brought with it a disease, COVID-19, but, but I think that there's maybe a worse disease that it's brought along with it, and that is the disease of polarization. That disease was already here. You know, we see that every day, how polarized we are as a people, a nation, a world. We're all against one another. Blame shifting going on. Even, even more, it's heightened in this time of, of coronavirus, it seems like. It doesn't matter what news channel you watch. Every news channel is filled with blame shifting. The, the virus is the fault of that country. It's the fault of those people. Or you look like those people, therefore it must be your fault. Or no, the virus is the fault of the people who are in charge who didn't prepare adequately for this country to receive such a pandemic. There's always blame shifting going on. That's what the world does. It wants guilty pay. Because someone has to pay. When there's sin, someone has to pay. And you know what? The world is right about that. When there's sin, someone does have to pay. But the world, of course, has missed an important fact, that someone has, in fact, paid. Jesus has paid. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He has paid, and because he has paid, Love covers a multitude of sins. And so Christians right now, I think, have a, a great opportunity to be strange. We have a great opportunity to be strange in this world, to extend grace to one another as we all adjust to this uncomfortable new reality for the time that we have it. We have the opportunity to be strange by, by shifting down on the blame scale and rather acknowledging that God himself has allowed the, these anxious times to overtake us for his own purpose, whatever his purpose might be. 
and he knows what it is, and his purpose is good. The end is near, so love one another earnestly. But the end is near, and so you also must host one another, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, says in verse 9. Now, he says it, he says do it without grumbling, and you have to wonder why does he tag on that uh, descriptor line there without grumbling. Well, hospitality normally means receiving people into your, your home, right? Receiving visitors into your home. But the thrust is a little bit different. It has a, a little bit more, more oomph to it, I guess. The, the gospel word is a combination of two words, phileo, the love of friends, and xenos, a stranger. So hospitality is actually actually extending the love of a friend to a stranger. It's taking someone you don't know so well and, and treating them as your friend. That's what gospel hospitality is. He's speaking to Christians in these churches in Asia Minor. He's telling them to love one another well, to, to show hospitality to one another well. And they might say, well, we know each other. We already know each other. We're not strangers to each other. But to that, I would say, you don't know each other until you know each other's sickness. Because we're all sick. We're all very sick. Hospitals are, are getting all kinds of attention now, and rightly so, because of their receding of the sick. And hospitals, you might recognize, now that I've explained the word to you, are very appropriately named. Hospitals receive people, visitors, who are sick and they receive them because of their sickness. Gospel hospitality is receiving visitors who are sick, and that's why you might grumble about it. None of us want for someone to come into our house at this point without having bathed in sanitizer or having wiped themselves down with a Clorox bleach wipe. None of us want virus-infested people to come into our home, but there's something much worse that we're dealing with, pandemic or not, and that is sin-infested people. We all are that. And gospel hospitality calls you to walk with one another in your brokenness. But of course you might say, that's the very thing that right now I can't do. Social distancing, six feet apart, I can't be close to you, you can't be close to me. And certainly that's true, you can't have people into your home but you can receive one another in other ways. Steve Chang is a pastor in Seoul, South Korea. And South Korea is a few weeks ahead of our country in this whole pandemic issue. And he wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition explaining some of their own experience in South Korea to help American Christians and churches to sort through the matter now. And he describes adjusting to the new normal, whatever that new normal might be and however long it might be for a month or two months or for a year or however long it might be. He explains that, that we as Christians have an opportunity to do things that we normally wouldn't do. You might notice all your neighbors already doing things they normally wouldn't do. They're out walking about in the neighborhood. You've probably met neighbors that you hadn't met before because they haven't been outside their house until now and they're getting outside for some fresh air things that they normally wouldn't do. Well, we have an opportunity as Christians to do that sort of thing. Pastor Chang explains one thing that they began to do. He said they began to practice what he calls 113. Rather than dialing 911 on your phone for an emergency, he says practice 113. That is, 
on one day, call one person from your church or maybe even from your neighborhood and uh, check on them, encourage them, make a phone call to that one person. And the three is prayer. Pray for three people. On one day, call one person to encourage and check on them and pray for three people in your church or in your neighborhood. One, one, three, he says, practice. Now, our own church, as Alex mentioned in announcements moments ago, is already beginning to try to seek to practice that. Kelly Meyer is, uh, has offered to administer a pen pal um, plan. If you want help to do that, she will help you and, and send you a name to reach out to in the church. It's a great idea, but you might say, I don't need the help to do that. I can do that myself. I'll just practice one, one, three. One day, one person, three prayers. Good. Go for it and do it yourself. Yesterday, Mary and I gave items from the grocery to one person in our church. And this one rejoice, basically, that so many people have reached out to her and cared for her and offered expressions of help to her. And, and I praise God for that. But we have not all have known that sort of care at this point a couple of weeks in. Some still need that same care, and we're seeking as a church to provide it, but you can take it upon yourself to provide that care as well. Jesus has received you in your sickness, and the end is near. So host one another. Show hospitality to one another. But lastly and briefly, because the end is near, serve one another with your gifts. Verse 10, Peter writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. You are stewards of God's very grace. Now, some of you have the gift of words, and I don't mean the gift of gab. Some of you do have that, certainly. And that can be redemptive or, or not, perhaps, depending on how you might use that gift. But some of you do have the gift of words. You have the gift of encouragement, the gift of exhortation. And take it upon yourself to serve one another with that gift as if it's the word of God. And some of you have the gift of deeds. You have the gift of hands-on service, of doing something that someone else needs. Whoever serves should do it as by the strength of God supplies. All of us, the fact is, have gifts that the Spirit of God have, has given to us in the church by which you might serve. And now might be the time for you to take a self-inventory and figure out what are your gifts? What do you have by which to serve one another? Peter, after all, in this letter explains that we're all being as living stones into a spiritual house for a season for some reason that we don't understand at this point God has removed every church from its church building even ours from the children's theater he's removed us all from our church buildings and perhaps it's an opportunity to show to help us to see whether we're a spiritual house or if we're just bricks and mortar God's grace is varied. That is, it, it comes by means of God. It comes by means of the Sabbath, which at this time we're not able to engage together. 
comes by the work of the Holy Spirit, but it all comes, God's grace comes through the gifted words and the gifted hands of every Christian. The end is near. So don't be caught living as if God had not loved you well, because he has. So serve one another. In chapter 3 of Peter's letter, he writes this. He exhorts Christians, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. I think that Peter's great interest in exhorting these strangers to persist in their strangeness for one another was so that someone else would ask for a reason for it. Why are you so strange? And upon receiving the answer, they too would believe. Several decades after Peter had written this letter to the Christians in Asia Minor, some decades later, the Roman emperor, his name was Trajan, he sent a politician to this same region of Asia Minor to go and serve there as the senatorial governor of that region. And after taking a survey of the land and understand the, the region where he was to, to serve as governor, this politician wrote a letter back to the emperor to explain what he saw. And this letter has become somewhat famous in church history. One of the things this politician wrote to the emperor was this, the contagion of that superstition, and by that he means Christian, the contagion of that superstition has penetrated not the cities only, but the villages and the country. The contagion of that superstition, Christianity, has penetrated not just the cities, but the villages and the country. But that politician hoped to squash the contagion, that is, to, to get rid of the but he failed. Now, may it be that this current public health crisis, possibly the end in the eyes of some, will make plain to the world the strangeness of the gospel. Is the end really near? Well, yes, it is. The next great event is Jesus, and we invite it together every Sunday when we gather for worship. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The end is near. So love one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another. And serve one another well, so that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that uh, you would help us to believe this good news. We pray that you would help us to set our anxiety aside, to cast it upon you, and to recognize that you're the one who's in control of all things, even of an unseen enemy. I pray that you would be at work in our church and in all churches to indeed show us that we are more than just bricks and mortar. We are to be built up as a spiritual household, a spiritual temple, Christ as the cornerstone each of us as living stones, would you enable us more and more to be the church, that the church world might be the church, that it might be strange in the eyes of the world, and yet strangely attractive because of the gospel, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.